All right, good morning. We got another great day, a little fresh powder and some sunshine. So once again, we've been blessed with some good snow and good weather. First of all, is Jeff Baker up here yet? Rick, you see if you can... Ah, here he is. <laughs> okay. We want to thank Jeff Baker. He is the man that put all this together for us, had the food out and everything, so wanted to give him a special thanks. There we go. All right, here we are. Now, he's been doing this. How many, how many years have you been doing this for us? You know, I've been doing this for three years now, and uh, I have to say we, we really look forward to your group. Uh, your, your group breathe a, a breath of fresh air into our restaurant. Thank you. We appreciate that. Really do. Great. Thank you. Absolutely. Keep coming back, please. We will. We enjoy you. This time next year. Absolutely. <laughs> Thanks, Jeff. Great job. Rick had one little uh, special music deal he wanted to do before we get into the uh, speaker. So, Rick, I'll thank, thank hand it back to you. Much. I appreciate that. I have asked... Um, Mr. Nobler to, um, to come up and, and sing his, his rendition of My Mother Was a Truck Driver Till Jesus Set Her Free. But, but, but it's such a... <laughs> but it, but it, it, it's such a sensitive issue that, that everyone else has asked him not to do it. And, uh, uh, you know, as a father, it's, it's always exciting to see your kids... Uh, walking with the Lord. Uh, I have three of our four that are walking strongly. One's a worship leader, and I get so excited when, um, you know, I just see him serve and, and praise God. Well, this morning's speaker is Doug McCrary, uh, who Doug and I have met many years ago and, and served with Billy Graham's training and all that stuff together. And, but uh, Doug's son, Russ, is going to come do a song for us right now. Doug doesn't know that. <laughs> This is my eighth year to be here, and uh, I know I don't look that old. <laughs> I've got a couple comments from you guys, and you guys think I'm in high school, but no, I'm 22. Um, anyways, um, this Rick asked me to play a song to kind of introduce my dad, and uh, the one thing that stood out to me this year about this conference is just the centrality of Christ and, and our affection for him. A lot of times um, we just get caught up even in, in the realm of ministry and other things. And I know for me, I've been working in ministry now for almost a year. And sometimes we just miss it. We just forget that, like Maisel was talking about last night. We miss that Christ is to be the center of our hearts. And the fact that Christ paid our debt is why, why we live our lives the way we do. Um, God is pleased with us, just like Maisel said, just because of the sun um, and because he paid it all. And so I'm going to play a song. Most of you guys probably know it. It's a hymn called Jesus Paid It All. Um, so if, if you sing along, that'd be great. Don't clap for me at the end. It's not about me. Um, but uh, it's all about him. I hear the Savior say Life strengthens you to small 
shout of weakness, watch and pray. Find in me thine all in Jesus paid it all, and so to Him I Sin had left a crimson stain, He washed it white as snow. Lord, now indeed I find. Lord, now indeed I find Thy power and Thine alone Can change the leper's spots And melt the heart of stone Jesus paid it all And so to him I Sin had left a crimson stain He washed it white as snow So praise the one who paid my debt And raised his up from the dead paid it all oh, to him I sin and left a crimson stain he washed it white as snow alright dad Thanks, Russ. Well, guys, have y'all had a good time? Yes. Yes. It's been pretty good snow up here, huh? Good weather. It's like, what, 35 degrees out there yesterday? But uh, what about the culture we're living in now? Are you feeling pretty good about that? Feeling pretty good about where things are going in our culture? With the economy? They suck. <laughs> That's putting it mildly, right? Um, you know, things may not get better. The next year, it may, it may get worse. Liberty's taken away, like Kelly was sharing the other night. And uh, we may find ourselves a year from now, what if we couldn't even come gather in a place like this? Would that shake your faith? What do you do... When the world around you is falling apart, do your eyes go to that situation and that circumstance, and does that dictate then who you are? Because if you're a believer in Christ, it shouldn't. But unfortunately, Walter, when we get the C word sometimes, our focus goes off of Christ, that C word, and onto the cancer word. Or if our bank accounts go down to zero, like I've seen in my life, John, you may have seen that too. You see a zero, and now a lot of people are seeing it. 
Does our eyes go to that situation and go off of Christ? Just like when Peter was looking at him, he was able to walk on water, but when his eyes went off of him, he immediately sunk. So what, what situation is it going to take in your life to make you realize that he's the only thing that you can cling to? You see, you come to a conference like this, and, uh, and we get fired up because we hear the truth taught. We see guys that model it in their life, and we get all fired up that I can do this. You know, this is what it's really about, and this is what I should do. But then when we go back to the real world, what happens? Our momentum gets killed by little momentum killers that Satan brings into our life. Momentum's a funny thing, isn't it? You know, I love football. I grew up loving football, and it's so funny in a football game how momentum dictates the game. Ryan, my 16-year-old, was playing this year for a team. They were 0-5, and, and Ryan's a tight end, and he's got really good hands, and, and he's been wanting the ball all season. They wouldn't throw to him. They just they had this star running back, and they ran off. They ran. They didn't try anything new. It was the same thing every game. And this star running back would do good, but they never won because they didn't, that was, they were so one-dimensional. So this one game, he gets hurt. And I'm sitting up in the stands with Lori and we're watching and man, they throw to Ryan, he catches his pass and we're like, just like any parent would, we get excited. Then they throw him another pass. And then right before the half, they had scored a touchdown to go ahead. Now this is an 0-5 team looking for their first win. And right before half, they throw Ryan an extra point, and he catches it. I think I jumped about 50 feet in the air when he caught it. I was so excited, and there was like, I think, 15 or 30 seconds left in the half. And they went up by two. And I mean, our stands, these are fans who, have, they went 0-10 last year. So they're looking desperately for a win. So the whole crowd was excited, and they're going, hey, that's your boy. Everybody's so excited about it, and we're excited. 30 seconds left, you kick off, they get the ball on their own 30. What do you do with your defense with 30 seconds left? You pull them back, right? They put them up. Boom, long pass, touchdown. And the other team goes ahead right before the half. The momentum shifts again and stays with them, and they lose the game. Probably the closest chance they had for a win all year. But that's what happens in our spiritual lives. When we come to a retreat place like this and we, we get excited, we get fired up, or, or maybe just in your own personal quiet time, you have a great quiet time, you go out for that day, and what happens? A momentum killer comes into your life. Satan brings something into your life to try to distract you from the very thing that God was just teaching you, to get your mind off of him and onto your circumstances. Nobody knew this probably better than Paul. You know, Maisel talked about Paul last night, and he referenced a scripture, and I want to go to that scripture in, in uh, 2 Corinthians. And just read for a second this incredible Christian life that Paul got to live, and see if you want to jump on this train. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. 2 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 24. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stopped or stoned th three times 
I was shipwrecked a night and a day I've spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys on dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers from false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights. I've been hungry and thirsty, often without food and cold and exposed. Apart from such external things, there's also the daily pressure upon me of concern for all the churches, and the churches had issues, just like all churches do. And, and this is Paul's life. Follow Christ. He'll give your life peace and joy and happiness, and that sound like something you want to sign up for? This is his life. But yet, Paul, in the midst of all these things, was able to maintain joy. And, and I think he, he gives us some instruction today that we can take. And what I hope to do in the next 25, 30 minutes is give you four anchor points for your Christian life that will help you maintain the momentum from when you leave here. And not just here, but, but just to maintain the momentum in your life. And I want us to go to Paul's letter to the, uh, to the Philippian church. If you open up your Bibles to Philippians 4... And, and let us look at what Paul wrote the Philippians. And this whole letter, like Mazel said, is about joy. And, this, and the reason I wanted to read what Paul was going through is so that you understand kind of the basis from where he's speaking. This is not a man who's sitting up in some study, just studying the old scriptures and, and going, this is what we should do and never living it out in his life. He endured far more than any of us will ever endure in our life. And he's not only living joyfully in that midst, he's being a cheerleader for joy. And that's what this whole letter is about. Over and over and over and over in this letter, you see joy and rejoice, joy and rejoice. And most of us, we really don't even know what joy is. For us, we equate joy with happiness, and that's not what he's talking about. Because I'm sure when they were ripping the flesh all off his back, he was not a happy man. But he says, be joyful. In Philippians 4, starting in verse 4, read with me. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your forbearing spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is good repute, if there is any excellence in anything worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things. The things that you have learned and received and heard, and seen in me practice these things. And the God of peace, he'll be with you. Let's pray. Father, in the next few minutes, please instruct us in this area of joy. We desperately need it in our life. Father, I pray that you would unlock our hearts, that you would break the, the hard ground and, and, and move away the, sto the stony soil so that your word would take root and produce fruit in our lives. 
And like Paul, Lord, we could go through any circumstance with joy, not because of our strength, but because of your Holy Spirit dwelling in us and our hope in Christ Jesus. Lord, we love you. Come, Holy Spirit, and teach us now in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, in this passage, Paul, Paul starts off by saying, rejoice. This, this is at the end of this letter, right? This is kind of like his, he's in prison in Rome when he's writing this, which is another thing. He's in prison as he's writing this letter about joy. So not only has he endured all these things that I read earlier, he's in prison sitting in a jail cell somewhere writing this letter. And he's at the end of it to the Philippian church, which he had a great love for the Philippian church, and he's writing them this, and at the end, he's just kind of throwing out these commands. And he starts off with this, rejoice in the Lord. And again, I say rejoice, he says it twice. If he were here today, instead of saying it like he did, he would scream, rejoice! Rejoice! And he, and he ties it together within the Lord because that's the key to our rejoicing. It's understanding that there is absolutely nothing outside the bounds of God's control. Nothing. In the Lord. Our rejoicing is in the fact that we are children of God, that he has chosen us and redeemed our lives by filling us with his spirit and giving us a new life in Christ. And for a lot of us, we, we, we have a hard time grasping that. I know I do. When I'm going through a very difficult time, I don't want a pain. Who's signing up for pain? Nobody. My wife was sharing. I don't know if you remember me sharing either last year or year before about a guy named John Monger. John Monger was a Buddhist in the country of Bhutan, B-H-U-T-A-N. And at 17 or 15, his parents divorced and left him homeless without food. He began praying. A Christian man came into his life, took him into a secret meeting. To make a long story short, John Monger became a follower of Jesus Christ and a child of the king. He was kicked out of Bhutan for preaching the gospel. He spent three months in prison there, was beaten every day that he was in jail there. He moved from there. They exiled him to Nepal. He did the same thing. He spent 15 months in a Nepali prison. Same thing, beaten. All he had to do was renounce Christ, but he couldn't. Why? Because Christ was his redeemer. His hope was in Christ. How could he renounce him? John was exiled from Nepal to India. He goes to India. Somebody directs him to a, a small Bible teaching ministry down there. He meets his future wife, Tia, who is a, a uh, daughter of a wealthy Indian. And, you know, the caste system is still very active over there, and the wealthy people didn't have much to do with people that were poor. John was poor. He didn't have a dime. He loved the Lord, and he was preaching the gospel. Tia came into his life. And uh, she said, you know what? I want to renounce my wealth to go with you. I choose suffering. I would rather suffer with you than have all this money that my father has. My wife was relaying this story to our neighbors yesterday, professing Christians, and her mother-in-law was there. Her mother-in-law heard the story and said, not me. I choose the easy life. And I thought, wow. And then I thought about my own life, and I said, I do the same thing. Don't we all choose the easy life? Do you know in this book of Philippians, at least two or three times, Paul says that suffering is the destiny 
of us as believers. Do we live our lives like that? Rejoice in the Lord, not in our money, not in our position, not in our family, not in our accomplishments. He says rejoice in the Lord. Listen, God created each one of us for an intimate relationship with him. And the Bible says that because of our self-ledness and our selfishness, that we broke that relationship and incurred the wrath of God forever and ever. But God in his mercy sent Jesus to the earth who lived a perfect life. He was born of a virgin. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. He said, I'm going to go down a cross for the sins of you. He did it. He was crucified and resurrected. And because of what he did, we now enjoy the right relationship with God if we turn from our self-led, self-serving lives to allow God to be who he's supposed to be in our life. And that's the reason we have hope for no other reason but for the gospel. So where is your joy? Brother, where is my joy, Doug? Is it in the Lord? That's the first anchor point, guys, is that if we are going to maintain our momentum, we have to have the proper perspective. And the proper perspective is this, that we look at life from God's view. Not from our view, from God's view. And God says, you're my child. You're my child. Nothing can touch you apart from my allowing it. That's God's view. That's the proper perspective, guys. Well, he goes on to say in verse 5, let your forbearing spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. The word there means like a sweet gentleness. It's like Walter was talking about yesterday in that, that when we deal with unbelievers, we shouldn't deal with this harsh, condemning spirit, but a sweet gentleness. Now he's talking here, they were having problems in the church and there were these two women that was creating some division there and there were other people that creating division and Paul saying, listen, be gentle. Don't worry about revenge. Don't worry about trying to assert your way. God's in control. So let your sweet gentleness come across to them because the Lord is near. The Lord is near. You may not feel him near. A lot of times I find when I don't feel him near, it's because my eyes are on my circumstances instead of on him. I'm not looking to him. I'm trying to fix it on my own like we all do. And most of us do not start off when we deal with crisis with prayer. Our first response is, how can I handle this? And that's why he goes on to give us the second anchor in verse 6. He says, be anxious for nothing. What does the word nothing mean? Nothing. Gene, can you give me the Greek on that? Does it mean like zip? Just absolutely nothing, right? The Greek word is nada. Nada. Danada. Yeah. Nada. <laughs> he says, be anxious for nothing. You know what, guys? Not only do we need a proper perspective, but we need a proper foundation in dealing with the issues that we have to deal with. And he's saying in verse 6, be anxious for nothing, but in everything he contrasts. He goes from nothing to everything. In other words, we're not to worry about anything, but we are to pray about everything. And I have people all the time, well, I don't think God really cares about my business. I do. Or, or I, don't, I don't know if God really cares about which car I buy. He might. You know why? Because I went to a dealership the other day. This was a couple of months ago. 
And because of this dealership, end up going to this particular car that I didn't even care that much about, but my wife kind of had desire. And I prayed about it, and God said, yeah, you have the freedom to go do it. So I went there, ended up sharing Christ with not my salesman, but another salesman who's now a believer as a result of what God did in bringing us together. So there's nothing too small for God. Nothing. And he says, pray about everything. And he goes on to say, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. In other words, when we pray, we should be thankful. Thankful that I have cancer. Thankful that, that, that my child is rebelling, that my wife is rebelling. Thankful that I lost my job. He, said, he doesn't put any conditions on that. He says, Pray about everything with thanksgiving. Why? Why are we thankful when we endure hard times? It's because we know that, one, we are not citizens of this world, which Paul said in chapter 3. We are not citizens of this world. Our, our, our citizenship isn't here. It's in another place. And our foundation has to be grounded on prayer. Let me read something to you that uh, John Piper says. Oh, how many people today, even Christians, would murmur at Jesus for callously letting Lazarus die and putting him and Mary and Martha through the pain and misery of those days. And if people today saw that this was motivated by Jesus' desire to magnify the glory of God, how many would call this harsh or unloving? What this shows is how far above the glory of God most people value a pain-free life. For most of us, Love is whatever puts the human value and well-being at the center. Love is really doing whatever you need to help people see the glory of God in Christ. Love keeps God central. If cancer will make me a better witness of the glory of Christ, then bring it on, Lord. If, if, if losing my job will allow somebody to come in the kingdom, then bring it on, Lord. That should be our attitude. That's what Piper's saying. And when we pray for things and we see God not answering the way we want, often we begin to pout or we begin to doubt his love. And that's exactly what the enemy wants. He wants us to doubt the love of God for us. Hudson Taylor, this great missionary who only prayed, he never asked anybody for a dime. He just would go to his prayer closet. He buried his wife on the mission field. And he, he was this incredible saint of God who prayed and I'm sure had many unanswered prayers. Said this about Paul when he was talking about Paul's burden, that Paul had this thorn in the flesh that he prayed and he prayed and it never was taken away. He said, Paul was distressed by a burden which he did not have the strength to bear. And he asked that the burden might be removed and God answered the prayer, but not by taking away the burden, but by showing him the power and the grace to bear it joyfully. Thus that which had been the cause of sorrow and regret now became the occasion of rejoicing and triumph. And that's why Paul could write, Most gladly, therefore, will I rather boast about my weakness, because when I am weak, he is strong. We need a proper perspective on prayer. And when we pray, we need to understand it's not our plan, it's God's plan. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard our hearts, that's our feelings, and our minds, that's our way of thinking. 
And if you're spending time praying and trusting God and getting your focus on him, guys, he's going to guard your hearts and your mind. Well, it goes on in verse 8 to say not only do we need a proper foundation in prayer and a proper perspective with God's view, but he says we need a proper standard. Look at verse 8. Finally, brother, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is good repute. How do you know what's right and honorable? What is your standard? What is our standard? What is it? It's the Bible. The Bible is the standard of our life. So if this is our standard, can I ask you a question? Why is it that we have such a hard time reading it and and allowing it to be poured into our life? If this is our standard, how do we know what the standards are? How do we know what God is like? How do we know how he responds if we don't read it? And I hear from so many people because I travel around and I'm speaking to all these men's groups now. And, and a lot of the men, well, I just can't understand it when I read it. I don't understand anything in it. The problem is when we read the Bible, a lot of times we read it like a sports page or a newspaper. We read, we try to read things that we apply to us instead of reading the whole thing. There, remember when Hurricane Andrew hit down in Florida years ago? There was this one subdivision, a thousand homes, all but one was destroyed. A thousand homes and one, one home in the middle. The news crews were out, <clears throat> they were doing their, their post-storm interviews and stuff, and they go up to the guy who was in front of his house and said, how's your house standing? All these other homes, he said, well, he went and got this book. He said, I built it. He said, you see this? This is the building code. I built according to the code. The code said, if you build it this way, it will withstand a hurricane. I did it, and it withstood it. All 900 other homes wiped out his one home standing. And guys, the problem in our lives is we don't build according to the code. We don't even know what the code is. We we try to live our life based upon what we hear people teaching us. And not what God teaches us in his word and not what he gives us. We don't go to it ourselves. And and that's why when the storms of life come and they hit us, our houses begin to crumble. Because we don't even know what it is. And Paul's saying, listen, brothers, whatever is honorable, whatever is pure. At the end, he says, let your mind dwell on these things. Meditate. Memorize scripture. That's what he's saying. That's the standard. I uh, got some handouts over here on this table, and I want everybody to get one if you get a chance, because I'm going to challenge you. Last year, my son Russ challenged me to start reading 10 chapters of the Bible a day, and I'm going, wow, that's a lot. 10 chapters? Are you serious? And I'm going to tell you what, guys, it's transformed my ministry and my life. My wife said that. She said, Doug has changed you because you're pouring in the word. This professor out at uh, Russ's college was a druggie. He was a college dropout, and he wanted to marry this girl, and the father-in-law gave him a Schofield Bible and said, read it. He didn't didn't know what to do. He wasn't a Christian. He didn't have a Christian background. So he decides he's going to read one chapter in Matthew, one chapter in Genesis, one chapter in Psalms, one chapter in Acts, 
Just one chapter a day and work through the whole Bible. Ten lists he divided the Bible up into. He's been doing it now for 20-something years. Now he's a professor at a Bible college. No seminary degree. (laughs) But I'm telling you, the Word transformed his life. And it'll do it to yours if you will allow it. That's the standard. You've got to know what the standard is. He says in verse 9, not only do we need a proper foundation and a proper perspective and a proper standard, but we need a proper model. In verse 9, he says, the things that you have heard, learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Paul's saying, look at my life, guys. This is what what you've received from me, what I've given you, and you've seen it. In other words, it's not just the getting it here, it's observing. This is the way you live the Christian life. He was a model. We need a proper model. Are you going through life solo? Do you have a model in your life that you know personally that is helping you understand the Christian life that you can go to when your world falls apart and you say, hey, I don't know how to deal with this because we all need them. If you don't have a wingman, guys, you're going to crash. You're going to crash. You can't go through life solo. And Paul's saying that, listen, the things that you've heard and received in me, these things go and practice. And what does he say in 2 Timothy? The find faithful men and then teach them. And the, we've, I'm reading a book called The Lost Art of Discipleship by Leroy Imes. And basically, he says, we, we've not been doing discipleship. It's been all about information and not about passing it on. And, and guys, I'm just going to tell you, it's very hard to disciple somebody in a group. Because you have to have authenticity and be able to have interaction, communication. And, and, and Paul is saying, listen, what you have learned and received, pass this on to others. John Maisel has been one of those guys for me. Joe White has been one of those guys. You know, John has taught me so much about evangelism. And when I've, I'm hurting and I go to John and I talk to John, he, he has helped me see clearly that my focus has to be on Christ. My focus should stay on Jesus. Joe White, I, I talked to Joe. Go to the scriptures. Go to the scriptures. Memorize them, Doug. Until Joe, I was really good friends with Joe. I wasn't memorizing a lot of scripture, but because of Joe's influence in that area, do you know my three adult children have all memorized a whole book of the Bible? And I hear guys say all the time, well, I can't memorize. I, I just have a hard time memorizing. I want, I want you to watch, you know, because our first responsibility is to our children, right? And, and, and a few years ago, we adopted a little girl from China. We got her at two years old. She couldn't speak a lick of English. And I want you to see this video clip of her at four. And I want you to listen through the, the mouth of a little child requ- quoting 10 or 11 verses in Psalm 139. And listen to what God's word can do coming through the mouth of somebody. Go ahead and play that clip. Lord, you have seen what is in my heart. You know all about me. You know when I sit down and when I get up. You know what I'm thinking, even though you are far away. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you. For I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. 
I know that full well. God, your thoughts about me are priceless. No one could possibly add them all up. If I could count them, there would be more than the grains of sand. God, see what is in my heart. Know what is in it. Put me to the test. See if there's anything in my life you don't like. Help me to live in a way that's always right. Song 149. Guys, if that baby in two years can learn English and memorize, we can memorize. So I have two challenges to you today. One challenge is to memorize at least 10 verses, at least 10 verses in the next couple of months, okay? I don't care what verses you pick, but put God's word in your heart. The other challenge I have for you is take Professor Horner's challenge to read 10 chapters a day. Give it one month, I promise you it'll change your life. And, and if that's too much for you guys, if that's too much, then do what I call the 151 method. Just one minute of prayer, five minutes of reading, and one minute of meditation. All right? 151. But, but when, if you do Professor Horner's challenge, you know what you're going to realize? You, you, you're going to realize how starved you've been for the Word of God when you start pouring it into your life. Because it's like watching 24 lost. You just... You want it more and more. You can't wait to get back. And you'll find yourself sometimes reading more chapters a day. A proper perspective, guys. A proper foundation. A proper standard, the word. And a proper model. Those can be the anchors that can keep your momentum with Christ going. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Paul. Thank you, God, for the word that you spoke through him to us. Lord, we confess to you that our faith is weak. Help us with our unbelief. Lord, you are a great and mighty God. There is none like you. Everything else is idle, Lord. Nothing can sustain us. Nothing can provide for us. Nothing can can keep us, Lord, apart from you. And so we look to you. Lord, many people in this room are dealing with problems and issues that are so much bigger than anything in this world. Lord, they desperately need you. Lord, I need you. We thank you, Lord, for Jesus Christ, and we thank you for the sacrifice. And like Russ said, he paid it all. Lord, thank you for paying for our sin. Thank you for your mercy to us because we're so undeserving, Father. Thank you that in the midst of our sinfulness and in the midst of our rebellion, you reached out to us and you redeemed us so that we could be at peace with you. And Father, I lift up every man in this room, myself included, and ask that you would guide us and Lord, make the word valuable to us, more valuable than any other thing we have here on earth. 
Make it valuable, Lord, so that we know you. We know who you are. We know that we can trust you when the world around us is crumbling. And no matter who's in power, no matter what they try to do to us, Lord, that our allegiance and our loyalty would remain firm as we fix our eyes on you because we are your children. We praise you. We honor you. And we pray this in the authority and the name of Jesus, Father. Amen.